I'm Justin Lassick. And I'm Mike Badalino. And you're listening to 70s Big Radio. Your friends on your drive to your nine to five. Oh, bienvenidos a la cita del amor, uh, las cataratas pentamedias. Do you know what I just said, Mike? Not a clue. Uh, I said, uh, I want a big steak in Germany. Actually, I said, welcome to the dating show, uh, the waterfalls, and then pantyhose. Germany's the language now? Yeah, you're not listening. Anyway, welcome you to said, the you show. You said I said in German. Welcome so. to 70s Thank Big you. Radio. It is Veterans Day, November 11th, 2013. It's a beautiful day outside. Mike, how you doing? I'm doing splendid, Justin. I'm doing just fantabulous. Right. Okay, so <laughs> wherever you guys may be in the world, thank you for making 70s Big Radio a part of your day. Today is a special day. Before we get to that, what happened this past weekend is that AC competed in a meet, and he actually had a pretty good meet, Mike. Yeah, the best part of his meet was him talking to Steve Goggins. No, I'm kidding. The best part of his meet was him deadlifting 600, but he, we've got some sweet photos of him and Steve Goggins that we're going to post later, because right. I'm a big Steve Goggins fan. But anyway, AC did a meet in Georgia. Uh, Saturday morning, he was supposed to weigh in as a 220, and he weighed in at 223. See ya! Yeah, yeah, Which good. isn't the worst thing ever, because uh, come time for the Arnold and Nationals, AC has to be 231, and AC normally has a problem with being too light, so him and uh, Sean decided to eat Korean barbecue Friday night, and AC ended up being three pounds. It's not just up. Korean barbecue, it's all you can eat Korean barbecue, and obviously, <laughs> yeah. Asian food is salty as shit, and I don't know... It was a stupid decision, so he comes in and weighs too heavy, so he has to wait all day to fucking lift. And apparently the meat wasn't on time as well as it should have been, so he ended up lifting three or four hours after the time that he's supposed to lift for 242. And then, uh, so talk about his attempts, because they scared you, right? <laughs> uh, well, Sean was, Sean, and for those of you who don't know Sean, Sean's our other friend that does a lot, he's in the, the video from Utah earlier this year. Sean was kind of texting me and letting me know what was going on. And uh, the first text I get from Sean is, AC missed his opener. <laughs> I'm like, shit. And, you know, I... Which was, a, uh, it was 529, right? It was 529. AC doubled fi 535 a couple weeks ago. So I wasn't worried about him opening at 529. Uh, so I was like, man, okay, well, you know, stay on the phone during his second attempt. And, uh, you know, right before his second attempt, the phone got disconnected. So I'm sweating <laughs> here trying to figure out what happened. And... Uh, AC uh, made his second attempt, uh, which he jumped 10 pounds. And uh, for those of you who have done, haven't done a powerlifting meet before, if you miss your opener, uh, don't jump 10 pounds. Just take it again. Do it again. Yeah, do the same. Just way. do it again. <laughs> uh, he did get it, and uh, you know that's 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 fine. But just you know, bombing out is not is obviously not something you want to do. So if you miss your opener, meet. just take. It. Doing it at a uh, weightlifting meet is one thing because sometimes. Right, you'll make there in a weightlifting meet, but a power meet, like you can't try, you can't go up and wait and suddenly get it if you fucking were burned out on the first rep or something. Or the first so attempt. he got it. Uh, he got five forty and then he jumped to five fifty one, five fifty one, and uh, stalled out a little bit halfway up, but finished the lift. It was almost like uh, when he remember in uh, two thousand ten when he did five fifty one and he stalled out in the middle and closed his eyes and fell forward. Do you remember that? Yeah. So it was basically that, except. He, uh, he made the lift this time. So Yeah, I'm thinking we'll talk about this another day, but I was, I'm thinking of maybe he needs some more quad-dominant type squatting in his training to maybe account for that mid-squat that mid -squat stall. Yeah. Because he has a good bounce out of the bottom. That's, a, that's primarily a posterior chain thing with his squat mechanics, but I'm thinking that maybe some high-bar front squatting, some heavier stuff might help him with that quad 
that lacking of the quad strength. Anyway, so he uh, moved on the bench. Yeah, he benched. Uh, he opened at 374, which he should have smoked, and I haven't seen the video, but I'm sure he did. Uh, and then he jumped to uh, 391. The plan with jumping at 391 was so that in the event that he didn't get his third attempt, he would still PR. Uh, there's always something that happens with at AC's meets, just kind of like with me, just, some, just something that happens. And AC hasn't been able to PR on his bench in a while. Uh, so his previous PR is 386, so he just did 391. And I guess his abs started cramping pretty badly. I'm sure the Korean barbecue from the previous night helped that. And I'm but, sure uh, waiting all day to lift when you thought you were <laughs> yeah. going to lift at 9 in the morning has had something else to do with it. He said sure. he's run out of food and run out of fluids. I don't know how you run out of fluids when there's tap water everywhere in the westernized world, but I digress. No, there was no water there in the whole in the whole venue. Yeah, they um, banned it. Yeah, uh, banned he water. Waved, he waved his third attempt. Uh, Just smart. It was good. Yeah, I mean, it would have been nice to see him finally hit 402, given all the joking we had about it before the meet, but... <laughs> he murdered 600 on his deadlift. That was the most important thing. Yeah, so he he did that on the third attempt. He opened... Uh, he said the the warming up was really weird. He had to wait around for a while because the uh, the projectors, to, as far as... Tell, if you've never done a meet before, usually you've got some sort of screen, and it has uh, an Excel sheet or something that shows you what order you are in the flight. And... So you can say, oh, I'm eight guys out, so I probably want to take my last warm-up with blank guys out, however you like it. Like, usually there's about a minute for each uh, attempt, and it depends on the lift and all that. So apparently it was all messed up, so he had to wait around. Like, he hit 400, and then he had to wait, like, eight to ten minutes before he actually did 500 on the platform. So luckily our strategy is to kind of do a uh, last attempt on the platform for the first attempt. So 500 is actually, like, his last warm-up. And he did 551 and smoked it, and he said some guy came up to him and goes... Hey, you better have a bigger boner for 600. And he was just like, "Hey, man, I don't know you." No, he didn't actually say that, but some guy just came up and said that to him, and he was like, "What the fuck?" <laughs> I didn't know that. That's pretty outstanding. And then, uh, yeah, he comes out and he rage mode and uh, rips 600 off the floor, and he's probably good for Mike says 622. I'm thinking maybe like 617 or something, a little less than that. But yeah, he was good for more definitely. I heard that uh, Steve Goggins stood up in the crowd and stared at AC the entire time he did it to get him fired up. Is that a true statement? I, I think it was. And then I think yeah. uh, <laughs> I think Steve Goggins also changed the music to really intense gangster rap while AC was getting... No, I wish that part I, was true. I love, I love Steve Goggins' training music. It's so awesome. If you don't know who Steve Goggins is, just go to YouTube, Steve Goggins, and just watch most of it. I don't know why when we talked about who I wanted to train with, I, I, did I, I don't think I said Steve Goggins. I and I don't know why... Because I would definitely love to train with him. Uh, last thing about Steve Goggins, uh, Brooks Conway, he uh, he actually had a good meet too. I watched his video earlier. Um, oh, yeah. But he, he helps run uh, Quest Athletics, and he's a pretty good lifter. Um, and he's had a he's couple, very good. Yeah, he's had a he's had a few posts on the site. He usually lifts in gear, single ply, in USAPL and uh, the IPF international stuff. But he uh, he was raw, and he had a he had a really great meet. He had a he squatted five eighteen, I think, and he benched uh, three sixty nine. 69 and then pulled uh 601 six yeah he, he uh sumos but uh he's he's friends with goggins and uh steve goggins sent him a text once and it was just him with a hood on holding his cat <laughs> <laughs> i remember that was he, sweet. he said that to us so sweet all right but today we have a wonderful person one of my favorite people in the world to interview this is I'm excited about this interview, Mike, because uh, Eva T is a is a great person. I've always enjoyed being around her and getting to talk to her, and I like picking her brain about stuff. 
and uh, she's she's an awesome person and someone that AC fantasizes. I'm just kidding. He uh, really likes her too. <laughs> but Eva, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Um, congrats to AC. Um, we're we're in contact a little bit, and um, he's a sweetheart. I like him a lot. He wants to know why you haven't called. I don't call guys. They need to call me. Oh, okay. I'll let him know. <laughs> the way I roll. No. <laughs> um, no. But uh, I guess uh, let's let's start at the beginning, Eva, because there might be uh, maybe there might be someone listening that doesn't really know who you are. You know. So, because uh, you're like, you're the Miss President of the fitness world. No, uh, but some people may not know who you are that read this site because we get people coming from everywhere. So let's, let's start at the beginning and, and uh, talk about your skiing career. All right. Well, I have always wanted to say this. I'm kind of a big deal. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. Um, there, uh, I guess let me back up. The reason I'm saying that is because Eva was maybe quite... skills don't say that. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, she was quite popular uh, in CrossFit, especially back in the 2005, I don't know, 2008, 9, 10 period. So that's why I'm uh, kind of making fun of her right there. But, but Eva was, a, was an excellent skier. So to tell us how you got into your skiing career originally, Eva. Well, um, it starts really early. Uh, recently, uh, I don't know if you guys have read the book, The Talent Codes, great book. And I think every trainer should read it. And it talks about you know, how do we get good at things and how do the most talented people in the world get good at what they do? And um, I'm a real advocate of um, conditioning versus genetics. Um, I think genetics helps, but I really feel that um, from, in my case, I had good genetics, but I had uh, parents who got me out and had me active and my conditioning as I grew up was about movement and sports and specifically skiing. So we people used to ask me, when did you start skiing? And I said at three. But recently, after both my father and I have read the talent code, he's changed that to minus eight months because my mom skied through the whole pregnancy. Oh, cool. And not just like small, easy runs. She was getting, getting at it. Uh, and, you know, it's entirely possible that as a fetus, I was getting used to speed and the movement and the bouncing around. And, you know, after reading that book, we thought that may have something to do with um, why you became a good skier. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that I would, I think I'd agree with that because I don't know, I'd have to look at uh, child development again and, re and but as far as uh, fetal development, but getting used to the, uh, the, not the, not just the altitude, but the motion movement. Like there's a there there seems to be. I'm I'm a horrible skier, Eva, and I probably should get lessons from you. But there seems to be a rhythm when you're just kind of relaxing on a run, and someone who's really good seems to have a very easy rhythm, and they just make it look effortless. And so for you to be sitting in your mom's belly, growing through the entire pregnancy, it seems like a developing fetus would would almost get adapted or get get accustomed to the, that change in movement and stuff. So I would. I would buy into that the sensory, yeah. the sensory detail and everything. Yeah, I think that I could feel. I think the main thing would be acceleration and and maybe if she was catching some air, you know, get a little, uh, pull a few G's in there. Who and knows? So, what, Mike, what do you think you were doing in your mom's in your mom's belly when you were a fetus? 
Damn it! Looking at these freaking the questions for Eva on the Facebook. That's what that's what I was doing. Okay. <laughs> you you need to read Chris's question for her. He said, "Have you ever been skiing before?" <laughs> uh, and he said it just like that. I'm sure. All right. So when did you start competing in in skiing, Eva? So I was on skis at three. I started competing at eight, and um, it was right when freestyle came on the on the map and. There were times where I was a little embarrassed about freestyle, but now if you go back and look at a, an old skiing magazine, freestyle was cool. It was so retro, and everyone was streaking, and it was just a funny sport when it started. And so uh, at eight years old, my mom entered me in my first freestyle contest, and there's three events. There's moguls, there's aerials, and there's ballet. And ballet was a freaky little sport where you had to spin around on your skis, and you know, do scales on your skis. And so I won that in my division when I was eight and I continued to do freestyle. There wasn't a lot of competitions for young kids like me. So she brought me to big events, world championship events, and I would forerun those events. And, um, and what's, what's forerun mean? Forerunning is, is when you've got the, the main competitors who start, you know, number one through whatever, 60. But before they start competitions, they usually have kind of, um, I don't know, kind of a stunt person go down and check out what the, what, how, the, how the course runs. Okay. And they call those forerunners. So they usually have anywhere between one and six forerunners go down the competition hill talk to the what they call the technical delegate and tell them it was okay and obviously if every forerunner you know piles it in they're going to reassess if they're going to start the race okay. so so I foreran and then I went to freestyle camps and it it entailed um, me taking gymnastics as a kid and you know doing some trampoline work and uh, a little bit more acrobatic uh, skiing okay. and then when I was 12 I entered a ski race and I really loved the racing and um, actually maybe I was 11 I really loved the racing and there was a point where I was racing in the morning because ski races usually happen in the morning and some freestyle events they have at night and night skiing so there were I remember a couple days where I raced in the morning and then I did a freestyle event at night so I was kind of going double and then um, in 19 gosh I'm dating myself 1977, I won the um, Junior Nationals in freestyle. And after that, I went up to my mom and I said, can I retire from freestyle? I just want a ski race. And she chuckled a little bit because I used the word retirement as a you know, 12, 13-year-old. Right. And, um, and I went on to ski racing. Uh, at 16 years old, I uh, was invited to a camp up in Mount Hood, Oregon. It was like a shootout camp and uh, did really well in, in those camps and, and um, made, made the junior team U.S. ski team and started traveling in Europe and that was it, you know, made the team, started to get better, made the World Cup team, won a medal, um, was a top five ski racer in the world and um, went to two Olympic Games and uh, didn't medal in, medal in the Games but medaled in the Worlds and um, skied on the team for 12 years until I was 29 years old and then that was it so you want it says on your uh, website which is EBIT strength and conditioning this yep. uh, yeah this is an abbreviation thing up on the URL somewhere but uh you won six national championships during that time period yes that's awesome and then yeah. uh 
World Championship bronze medal, World Technical Ski Champion. And so those are kind of, that's kind of the summary, of probably a quick, overly simplistic summary of your ski career, 12 years of, of, of grit and hard work, I assume. So uh, one more question about skiing itself. Like what, when you're, uh, when you're <coughs> racing, what kind of, I don't know, what kind of speeds are you hitting there? Cause I, I just imagine this, I just imagine whenever I think of, even before I met you, when I think of like Skiva like racing, I just think of like you hunkering down, like you're leaning into it and you're fucking going fast as shit. So like talk about what, I don't know, what, what, what about racing appealed to you? And I, I don't know, it seems like the, the speed has something to do with it from my loser's perspective that can't ski. <laughs> well, well, it, it does have to do with speed and things coming at you at a fast pace. And um, there's different events. And downhill, you know, the gals are going 80, sometimes 90. Um, I would say an average, though, you know, it depends on if you're turning. If you're, right. there, courses are a series of turns, jumps, and straight sections. So usually you hit those higher speeds at straight, in straight sections. And then Super G is a little bit slower, and you hit you know, you're more in the 50 mile an hour range, but there's more turns and more terrain. Giant slalom is tighter turns. That would be more like uh, Grand Prix racing. You know, even though you're not going 90 miles an hour, the turns and the Gs are, are strong. And that was my favorite event was Giant Slalom. And then there's Slalom, which is the really short turn turns. And uh, if you can imagine, like, if you've ever gone running in a forest or anything or been biking and had things coming at your face like faster than you can react to that's what slalom's like and you're just it's a series of reactions that you're trying to get around these gates that they've set really close together and i think the average um uh, turn per it's 0.8 seconds per turn and it's about 60 turns so you're you're things are blurry i and, i just imagine <laughs> this being so intense like i'm always like fascinated by this especially especially imagining you doing it because you're you're this short little sweet gal because <laughs> you're like what are you five three i'm five five you're dude five five so you could uh <laughs> you could uh stand eye to eye with brent <laughs> <laughs> well yeah at the time the girls are bigger now and i don't know if that's just an evolution but and in, in my time, I was actually my father is a kinesiologist, and he did, he got he got the height and weight of every ski racer uh, on the World Cup, and the average was five five one thirty five, and that's how big I was. That's cool. Man. So, the, um, there's so many. I, I think this is so cool because it's not it's not every day you get to talk to someone that was that competed at like an elite level. And then also just this sport fascinates me because I'm so bad at it. Even one time I went night skiing with my wife and uh, we weren't married at the time, but we, uh, I was going, I borrowed the neighbor's skis. One of them popped off if I was turning, as I was turning, I crashed and I was all pissed off because I felt it was ridiculous. And then it was broken so I couldn't get my ski back in. And I wasn't about to try and like one-legged ski down. So I post-hold and just walked like a mile down to the next lift. And then I got a ride on a toboggan from Ski Patrol the whole way down, and I felt like a fool. And that's like my experience, like skiing, one of my experiences. <laughs> and you're so like amazing at it. It's just I don't know. I'm fascinated at the the daredevilness and like the the speed and the I don't know. It just seems crazy to me. To, I can't even like fathom me doing something like this. So I just think it's really cool. But um, talk. Ab let's talk about your uh, the tr talk about the off the off the ski type training you did throughout the, those 12 years like what 
what what kind of stuff did you do and then just talk about the intensity of it well in the beginning i listened to the team you know you're you're trying to make them like you and you want them to continue to take you on trips and in the and then but they had a really uh, not so good training regimen we were playing soccer which is really so skiing is the number one way you injure your knees and so for dryland training let's play soccer the number two way to injure your knees so <laughs> we, it was I don't know what they were thinking and then we were running and my father who's a kinesiologist said you can't run you need to start lifting weights and sprinting and that of course you, awesome. he is he, he's, he's an Olympian in fencing so of course I didn't Sweet. listen to him you don't you don't listen to your parents you're like whatever <clears throat> Um, I have to be able to run through the woods really fast because that's what we do when we go to ski camps. Finally, uh, someone started wrapping their head around us needing to be stronger and faster and just carry a little bit more weight. And so we did start, uh, I did start lifting and we did a little bit, we did some power cleans, but that was much later. I remember in Salt Lake, we had um, dryland camps and you guys probably don't remember this guy, but his name was Del Rogers. He played for the 49ers. He came in uh, to Salt Lake, and we just did football drills uh, for seven hours, running <laughs> stairs, up-downs, running into pads. Um, I remember standing on the field, like, just wanting to lose all of my pee poo. I just was <laughs> shaking. I was shaking like a dog before you're going to go for a walk. And he said to us, you know, my my uh, goal is to make you puke or cry. So that was like phase two of training. We were actually doing the right thing, but we were overtraining. And they were telling us to eat a high-carb, low-fat diet. And yeah. so that was holding us back, I'm sure. And then finally, I started listening to my dad, and I uh, started lifting more, started doing a lot more interval training, and... Um, I was doing two-a-days, and I had a gymnastic coach at the end. And so, for instance, Mondays would be a lifting day, and then in the afternoon I would do some sports activity, windsurf, or, or uh, just play volleyball or something. Tuesday mornings I had three hours of gymnastics, and then in the afternoon I had interval training. Wednesday was similar to Monday. Tuesday was gymnastics again with interval training in the afternoon. Friday was a light lifting day with an activity in the afternoon. Saturday was an endurance day, and Sunday was off. And um, I, I, I think I trained too much. Uh, I think that um, you know I had to, not not due to my training. Ski. I have to tell you that when you fall in skiing, the the only analogy I can make is that you know get on the freeway, get your car up to whatever speed you've clocked yourself skiing, and see if you have the balls to open up the door and jump out because that's what it's like ski falling in a ski race the the snow is ice yeah i can't and, imagine uh, i've i've fallen going slow and i almost got i was getting my ass kicked one night yeah <laughs> so it's gnarly and and i blew my knee out twice and i've had eight knee surgeries so that's part of the sport though there's a if you're on the US ski team for more than 5 years you have a 95% chance of blowing your acl is that, so what I was you, right. is that what you uh, injured on your knee? Yeah, I did both knees. Ooh. Not at the same time, but um, I've done both knees, and I've had some uh, cartilage you know, damage, and I've had surgeries for that as that well. That's going to be one of my questions is what kind of injuries that kept you out of training? So you've had ACL on each knee, and you blew out some cartilage. Mm -hmm. what, what else? Well, the cartilage blowouts were on my articular cartilage on the end of the femur, mm -hmm. so 
that was I had to get what they call a microfracture, which is um, you're 12 weeks non-weight bearing, and that's a real pain in the ass being on crutches for that long. And in a CPM machine for 12 hours a day, which is a machine that keeps your knee moving. And uh, so I did a lot of pool work when I was coming back from my injuries. But back to the training, I was an overtrainer. I was the, a person, my attitude was leave no stone unturned. Right. But there wasn't enough guidance to say, there wasn't anything like an HRV or there was not enough guidance to say, hey, you know, if you didn't sleep well, if you're feeling like you're getting sick or anything like that, slow down. It was like, I'm going to train no matter what. If I have pneumonia, I'm going to train. And that was their attitude too. When we went to ski camps, there was times you'd wake up sick and you'd go skiing. It was just, right. you know, you just put your nose to the grindstone. Well, and, would you say that um, it seems like that's just the mentality that people have that get to this high level. Like I've, I've worked with a lot of people in special operations and the, the few kind of world athletes that I know seem to function that same way just train and, and and then when you think you can't you train some more and that's the answer to it is that is that what you've observed in your time in your career it was but I I feel like if I were educated because I wanted to do the best thing for myself I, I someone should have told me here is exactly what you're gonna do and you're gonna be fine right. uh, you know looking back at it if you're an athlete, do you want to come into a meet undertrained or overtrained? I would pick undertrained. You're still overtraining can screw you up in so many ways right. that I would always pick uh, <clears throat> undertraining. So um, that that's something that if I was informed about, I would have done it because I was really dedicated to do anything I could. But if you, if I look at the people I competed with, <clears throat> there were a couple people that won medals in the Olympics, which. I was told I always had the same potential and I could beat those girls on any given day. But I remember t two specific athletes that were literally dead wood as far as tra dryland training were, was concerned. They wouldn't show up to camps. You know, one of them was, uh, you know, bragging about watching TV and smoking doobies all summer and, and they're winning. And they were undertrained, and I was overtrained. Right. So there you go. You know, so, it has a mental effect on you too. You can't, you don't deal with stress as well. Yeah, uh, well, all those things. My next question was going to be if you, we'll kind of get into what you know now here in a little bit. But if you if you knew how to approach your training like the way you do now, do you think your career would have gone differently? Well, I always say coulda, shoulda, woulda. Sure. If my aunt had balls, she'd be my uncle, right? But. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Well, yes, I, I think I would have done better. I think that I um, trained myself into a couple years into um, really sabotaging myself. And the years that I really had some of my best performances was when I was recovering from those knee injuries because I was limited in what I could do hmm. by That's A, interesting. pain, and B, I couldn't, you know, there's a point where your knee is just like spaghetti and you're not going to put a bar on your back and start squatting because the thing will just give. So, you know, there's a long time where you're just learning to walk again. And, uh, and, and you have about six months to get back on skis if you want to compete the next season. So It's almost like it artificially prevented you from getting too much systemic training. Exactly. The acute injury. 
it's 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 true. I believe it with my heart. I mean that my best season was coming back from um, an ACL injury, and I had fun. And I, I think if I could feel that way every season, I would have. You know, every experience you have can um, can project into the future experiences that you have. Now, you know, right now I'd say live in the moment, and you know, you try not to do that, but. In, in sports, you know, you suck at your last race. You're coming in a little scared that you're going to suck again. And um, so I think the more good experiences you have in competition, the more you're able to approach the future ones being relaxed and um, with less anxiety about failure. Sure. And so I think if I had more seasons of correct off-snow training – I would have had generally better experiences and would have maybe have been more successful. But it's all, you know, we're speculating. Sure. So, um, so what was there something that quote ended your career? Like, was there an event, or was it just time, or was it a performance change? Like, how did you close out your twelve years on the on the ski team? Uh, we were. It was nineteen ninety five. Uh, we were supposed to have the World Championships in Sierra Nevada, Spain, which I always performed well down there, I think because it was so sunny. But, uh, and they didn't get snow that year. And I remember we were in Marbella, Spain, a beautiful beach town, and we were waiting to see if they were going to hold the World Championships. And we got the word that they were going to cancel them. And we flew home to the States. And I remember sitting on the plane, first class seat. I should have been happy. <laughs> flying from Zurich to Chicago, get it, going back to Reno, where I live, Nevada, where I lived at the time. And um, just kind of losing it emotionally. And I, I think that the accumulation of, at that time, working so hard every season to have a big event like this canceled, I said, I can't continue to go year after year like this. That was one of the things that came to a head. The other one is I started to have a lot of fear in the starting gate that I was going to fall and get injured again. And so there were times I was standing in the starting gate, and I told many people this, and I felt like I was had my head in a guillotine and that I was just going to push off to, to something gnarly. And, you right. you know, when I was in my 20s, because so this is my late 20s, when I was early on in my late teens and early 20s, I never thought like that. I was like, where on this course can I get going faster? And where can I gain speed? And it was always, how can I go faster? And then it got to the point where I was thinking, how can I survive? And you just can't win like that. Right. So all those things kind of came to a head and I decided sitting in that airplane that I had to retire. And I went home and I told my parents that I was gonna retire. I flew back to Europe and wanted to finish out the season. I hadn't informed any of my coaches. And when I got back there, I, I, set, I went in to talk to my favorite coach, my head coach, coach, and I told him I wasn't going to come back the following season. And he was upset. He wanted me to stay. And he told me that the next season I didn't have to ski, that he would just make it work for me. I could go back to school. And that I could do it, you know, with minimum time with the team. And I said, listen, in order to be at the level I want to be at, I think that I need to train hard. I can't just half-ass it. Right. 
said, and I, and I knew deep in my heart I was done. I was burnt out, scared, and, and ready to open a new chapter of my life. So. Well, it's good that you got to go, I, I, hate, I don't like to use this phrase because it has a negative connotation, but kind of go out on your own terms instead of having to be nudged out. There's some like NFL players that have to be pushed out of their job because they just can't, they can't compete at that same level or they get hurt traumatically and can't do it. So at least you got to kind of go out on with, with knowing that it was the decision that was best for you instead of having something causing it. Right. Um, so talk about uh, the ne- what happened, like the next stage of your life. We kind of look at that whole ski period as like your competitive phase. What, And then you transitioned into a different type of competitive phase. So talk about that transition into, I guess, getting into CrossFit. Right. Well, I retired in 95 and in 96 and 97 I was like kind of worried like what am I going to do I was getting I was in school but I was kind of worried how I'm going to stay fit I didn't have that motivation you know I wasn't training for a medal or a world championship or anything and you know that's a big draw for an athlete you know when you have sure like who is it Wendler says you know you have to have a plan and a goal and I didn't have a plan and a goal for my physical fitness so um, I was floating there for a couple of years, taking spinning classes and doing some of my training. I used to I squat in a little bit, but you know I was like, oh, I don't need to lift weights anymore because I'm not skiing. And so I just did some foo foo training and was was a little lost. And then uh, in one of the spin classes I took, um, that's where I met Greg Glassman, and he would always talk to me about diet and exercise. And I liked his class because he did interval training instead of just going in there and grinding away. Right. But it took him a couple years, you know. He said, come train with me. Do one session with me. And I was always like, nah, nah. You know, I was kind of on my own program. And one day he just got to me and I I made an appointment with him and I did a workout with him. And it was it was really fun. It was reasonable. It was He added some gymnastics to it. There was some strength training in it, and I thought, wow, this has everything rolled into one, and I love it. And so I started training with him regularly, and um, then he said, you know, you should start coaching. And this is before there was like a CrossFit gym. Sure. We were doing this training at a place called Spa Fitness. Talk about Globo Gym. <laughs> Talk about Fairy Globo Gym. And um, so then... Um, one day he had me doing clean and jerks in this fairy globo gym. We didn't have bumper plates and he had all these coaches around. He's like, this is what a clean and jerk is. Total, we were totally experimenting. So I'm doing clean and jerks and I miss the jerk and I dump, it wasn't that much, like 115 pounds on the ground and a um, big smash crash and a couple days later I met him for breakfast and he goes, they let me go from... <laughs> this place and yeah and so I said he he said I don't even know what I'm gonna tell Lauren that was his wife and they um they started they got together with a guy named Claudio Franca who's a jiu-jitsu guy and shared a gym with him and they literally had like a a 200 at the most square foot little spot where there was two rowers a set of rings and then we could use the jiu-jitsu mats um and we, ha- you know, we took our shoes off and we put one of those cheesy pull-up bars out, and you know, we had a couple little pieces of equipment, and uh, we would do these circuit training, and um, 
And it just grew from there. I continued to train people. I charged them five bucks to come in, and I would always work out with everybody. And um, then it evolved. We moved to a bigger gym, and then Greg got his own gym. And that's when I really started to get into it. I started to do some O lifting, and they were doing the videos. And then I remember literally twisting Annie Sakamoto's arm off to try CrossFit. And reluctantly, she came in, and I did a work her first workout with her. And then she started training the 7 a.m.s with Greg and just was the new flavor of the month, I called it. And uh, <laughs> I was the first flavor of the month. Annie was the second flavor of the month. And then, then uh, Nicole came in, and she was the third flavor of the month. And, you know, we started doing the videos together, Nasty Girls and all that stuff. Which, and, was, the, uh, which was my first exposure in CrossFit, too. My uh, exercise physiologist teacher put that video up in the beginning of one of the classes. And I was like, what the hell is this? Yeah, <laughs> that was yeah. The, that was the first thing I ever saw. Um, and so it, it, CrossFit turned, in, for you, it turned into a competitive environment, right? It turned into a competitive environment, although I did not compete right. at it officially like they do now. It was more like, I gotta be in shape so I don't look like a dumbass on these videos, which they would spring on us. You know, Nasty Girls, I had just, clean teeth for seven hours, drove down the hill, didn't eat, put on my clothes, three, two, one, here's what we're doing, blah, 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 three, two, one, go. And I don't think what a lot of people also realize is I'm 10 years older than both Nicole and Annie. I'm not making excuses, but sure. that makes a difference. Um, I was 40 when I did Nasty Girls. And many people don't know, uh, not to throw you under the bus, but I mean, if people do the math, then they're going to figure out that you're 48 now and you don't yeah. look like you're 48 and you're in great shape. And I'm always, I'm still astonished. I think I, when I first met you in person, you were like 43 or so. Right. So, uh, you, you've trained your entire life and got into CrossFit and, it, and you've, you've stayed athletic. And just, just to clarify for anybody listening, uh, I've I've been around a lot of like freaky athletes, not not super like just crazy LeBron James or or Calvin Johnson type stuff. But I've been around some people that are kind of freaks. Like John Wellborn is a large man, and and I've benched him when he. I've, I mean I've spotted him benching four hundred five. I've been around some guys that come to my seminars that have like forty three inch verticals. But Eva, you're like. It's, it's hard to just blame it all on genetics because I think that's bullshit because a lot of people will say like, oh, AC or Justin, they're genetic freaks, but it's you put a lot of work in over the years and it definitely shows for your physique still at 48. Like you're in amazing shape and and if you don't know, re people are listening, like Eva won a master's weightlifting championship a few years ago. So like you, you have a good structure and you have great athleticism. So, and I always explain to people like she's a, she's just like freakish not and I, and I and I don't mean it like you're just not like that you're just god given or anything like that but you definitely worked hard throughout your entire life career and everything to to maintain this physical prowess and I th I've always been impressed by your ability so um how how did uh how did you move from this kind of competitive in, in mentality just to stay just to stay on your toes into where you are now with without looking at it at, in a performance light? Like, cause how would you describe it nowadays? You were in performance mode then, and how, what mode are you in now? Survival, no. <laughs> um, uh, well, so what happened was 
I was starting to get tired and I was just, um, I wasn't feeling right and I still was still pushing it, you know, oh, I'm just getting lazy. I still got to, I got to, you know, I was, red flag for me is when people say, I got to, and I was saying to myself, I got to get into the gym. I got to do this. I got to do that. And, um, I, uh, I refinanced my home and it's when the, when the, you know, the, the whole bank thing happened and I'd always bought real estate and done my own thing and gotten my own loans on my own two feet. But when we had the, the loan crises, I had to ask my parents to co-sign to refinance my house because I'm a single woman, you know, self-employed and banks don't like that. So, <laughs> um, so my parents co-signed for me and, um, I remember my mom a little teary-eyed saying, we're, we're going to co-sign for you, but we're really scared that if something happens to you, we're not going to be able to handle the payments on your home. And I was like, ah, just sell it or let it go, whatever, if something happens to me. But I, well, I looked into it and I said, you know, I'll get a life insurance policy. So I got a life insurance policy, but that entails getting some lab tests done. And I wanted to get the premier health rate. And I got some lab tests done, and um, there were some some not so good numbers on there. Um, my triglycerides were high, and you know, I sent my stuff to Rob Wolf, and he's like, "Dude, <laughs> what are you doing? Are you a closet cookie monster? What's going on here?" He's like, uh, "Matt Willan said it best: if if um, diabetes was in New York, you're in California, and you're walking across the country." And so I had some numbers that were squirrely. Um, so, and I was eating well. I was eating really well. And so that was a red light. Why, why do I have these numbers? And I remember getting an email from Rob in all caps, which means he was screaming at me, stop fucking training so hard. No fucking CrossFit. You can lift and walk, period. And I was like, wow. So I, follow, I was my dedicated person and I followed his directions. And I started to study what overtraining, what kind of, what kind of um, long-term effects it has. And is exercise always a good thing to do? And did my homework. And recently I did a functional medicine internship with Dan Kalish. And I've come to the conclusion. And of course, things always change. And I will admit I'm wrong. And, but from what I know now, from the studies I've learned, Exercise is not the magic pill. It can be an addiction. It can be bad for you if done at the wrong times, the wrong place, and the wrong movements. And um, I really believe that for someone who's interested in being healthy, the minimum effective dose is the way to train. The least amount of training to keep your body composition where you need it and to support the sports you love to do. And um, that's that's where I am now, and that is based on number one, strength and muscle mass, uh, and number two, uh, making sure that when you train, you've eaten well, slept well, and have a good mind space. That's a that's something that I teach when I do seminars and stuff. Is that I kind of write it on the board so that people can see it. That if X of a dose of stress and we'll call it X is enough then why would you do 2X or 4X or X squared and because the lifting world has a very volume oriented or even intensity oriented uh, training training focus and so 
my whole mentality when I'm trying to teach people how to program is that you, if, if you can do a little bit, then why would you do so much of it? So uh, I like, uh, this is why I really wanted to have you on today so that we could talk about this kind of, this style of training and how you approach it and the population that you work with and the, the methods that you kind of use to, to observe whether or not someone someone can train or someone should train rather. So when you're talking that exercise is not necessarily a good thing, what kind of exercise are you referring to right there? Well, first of all, if something is making someone feel good, I was walking with a friend of mine the other day and we were watching this guy do sprint down the pier and like, why are you sprinting here? It was kind of that look at me attitude. And I was kind of, you know, wrinkling my nose at it. But, um, he said to me, you know, if someone's really into it and they're feeling good and they think they're doing a good thing for themselves, like you can't get, be too hard on them. And I'm like, yeah, it just, it hurts me when people are trying so hard and they're doing the wrong thing. They could be spending their time being so much more productive. So um, I, I think that the, the minimum effective dose, which is the strength training and, um, and, uh, and just everything around that, the lifestyle being tip-top, is important. What was your question again? Basically, See, I'm 48. I'm losing my mind. <laughs> basically, basically uh, you said, you know, like, exercising may not always be the answer. Right, and, right. And typically what I see, and I'm just trying to see if you see the same thing, is that, you know, exercising is one thing for someone that's not performance-oriented. But people that do have uh, a performance focus will definitely dump their time and energy into shit that is going to be harmful for them. But that's usually going to be really intense stuff or too much right. stuff. And so right. that's kind of what I was getting at. Like, we're, I, I assume you're not saying that – obviously you're not saying exercise is bad, but you're saying like too much exercise, whether it's in intensity <clears throat> or frequency and stuff like that. That's, that's when we run into an issue, right? The, the dose makes the poison. And the choice of exercise makes the poison, as you know. So – I I think that um, that uh, there's certain exercises um, that you need to do away with. You know, if you're a dentist, you don't need to be doing things that put your wrists at you know at risk. Um, I think that generally there's a lot of bad information out there. And how many people do you know that want to lose weight that choose to run a marathon? Um, I think Jim Laird made a quote that said. Trying to gain health and lose weight by running a marathon is like painting your house with a chainsaw. <laughs> and uh, I love that. <clears throat> uh, so there's just a lot of misinformation and people are trying to do good. So that's one thing. Another thing that I see in exercise, especially in these mixed modality, um, is people, and me included, let me just say, I've, I've fucked it all up myself done all the wrong things, I had good intentions, and so I'm not pointing the finger at anyone. All I'm trying to do with what I say is open doors for people to maybe think in another way. That maybe maybe doing 100 snatches today isn't really what's going to help you in the big picture of your life. And maybe not having to go to the gym six times a week is um, something you need to take a hard look at. Are you addicted to exercise or do you need to be in there for a sense of community? What is this all about? Because what you're seeing is people getting, um, picking a fitness program, which is great. They get fit to a certain level, they lose weight and they start getting a little muscle mass, 
But then in order to get better, all they do is increase the volume instead of changing directions. Like, well, now I'm going to work on my strength or now I've, I need to work on my scapular stability or if you have a back problem. You know, getting your P's and Q's in a row before you decide to, um, you know, jump to maybe that competition level. And I'm just seeing a lot of, I think everyone wants to be an athlete right now. They want to call themselves an athlete. And that's a dangerous thing because I can tell you from being an athlete my whole life and competing that athleticism and performance is not a certificate of health. In fact, it's the opposite. So when you decide you're going to compete at something, you're going to have to do a volume of training that is probably unhealthy for you down the road. Now, mentally, if it's some sort of, you know, um, if it's a goal that you've had and you need to get the monkey off your back about something in your life and you need to go win something, run a marathon, whatever, do it. Get it over with and then try figure out the way to train for health, for the big picture, so you can spend time with your family and have a sweet life in your passions of life. I think it's a, an interesting look at things because we have, uh, there's different levels of of commitment to training. There's someone that just wants to do it for health and they might just kind of engage in the conventional fitness stuff. There's someone that just wants to use uh, what we would call effective means nowadays. Effective means mm-hmm. might be using kind of, uh, I say nowadays, but strength and conditioning has been around for a while, but it's almost like using strength and conditioning in, uh, in to, to maintain or improve health. So strength and conditioning, historically speaking, is solely performance driven. And we look at like, okay, we're going to have people train for performance, but they're going to do it more on a way that is going to be con- conducive to health. And then you've got the, the, end, the, other, the other side of things, which is we're going to use strength and conditioning solely for performance and solely for competition. Because like CrossFit is used as a competitive endeavor. And then there are some people who use CrossFit just as a means of exercise. So, and they might want to both call themselves athletes, but they might approach it two different ways. Like someone that comes to the site or, you know, 70's big and says, you know, I just want to, you know, be stronger than average and, you know, you know do the things <coughs> I need to do to be healthy. And this is, then it might be someone like Mike or AC that wants to compete in powerlifting. So um, there's definitely a, a, a disconnect between those two. Mike, do you think that, uh, do you think that a lot of people in the lifting world will do way too much and inhibit their actual health in the same way that we're kind of talking about CrossFitters? Oh, man. Uh, I don't know if we necessarily want to get go down this road with uh, talking about drugs. Just to, just out of... Uh, let's, let's go, let's go well, let's, generally well, speaking, I guess. Well, let's see. Let's, let's go into the doing everything, uh, everything possible to be the best that you can be, okay? So, like, for example, with powerlifting, okay, you've got a lot of different federations, right? You've got a lot of different people that want to set world records. Uh, you know, there are a finite number of people that are going to do those things, uh, and they're going to do whatever they can uh, in order to reach those goals. So you have a lot of people that see, uh, that put those people on a pedestal, right, and want to uh, want to be in the same realm as them. So, uh, uh you know the people that are following those, uh, you know, th- that are following those lifters. They uh, they want to turn themselves into the best that they can possibly be. So a lot of people will emulate those programs. Uh, they'll see that like like Dan Green. Okay, we talked about Dan Green before. 
Uh, Dan Green does an enormous amount of training. Uh, he squats, qu- squats three times a week, deadlifts twice a week, benches three times a week. Now, would you normally program that much volume for for a normal person? No. Okay, so Dan Green has clearly trained himself into be one of the best powerlifters ever. So people will people will see that and people will say, okay, well, you know, right now I'm uh, you know I'm only benching once a week. Well, I'm I'm really man, I'm really fucking this up. Uh, I need to start benching more. Uh, and then, you know, for a while, they'll be benching twice a week, and they'll be like, man, you know, I'm getting better. Let me start benching three times a week. And then they start having shoulder issues, and then they start having, uh, you know, bicep tendon issues. They're like, okay, okay, well, maybe I'll cut it back down. They're like, or maybe, uh, you know, like, maybe I can start taking tests. And I'm not saying that everyone is going to do that, uh, but, you know, people will do what they can to emulate the performance of, you know, the people at the top of the sport. Uh, so what I would caution people you know that that want to be the best at powerlifting or uh you know you need to you need to search all different training methodologies you know everyone's got different things like we talked about Lillibridge right we talked about Lillibridge last week right Justin yeah okay so he you know he squats once a week and he deadlifts once a week uh you know and that's a lot different from other powerlifters so uh you just need to be cautious with how much volume you're using and with you know uh it you know with how good you really think you can become and not do everything uh, under the sun in order to get better. Well, that, sorry, sorry, I went off on a tangent right there. but uh, It's an interesting <laughs> point though because if you bring yeah. it back to uh, the CrossFit side of things because yeah. Eva, uh, you work with a lot of people that are kind of the burned out CrossFitter type or the burned out mm-hmm. strength and conditioning enthusiast and that right. same thing that Mike was just talking about in powerlifting occurs a lot in, in CrossFit. I have guys that, uh, that don't know the website that I run and stuff, they don't know my background or anything, and they'll be like, hey, did you watch uh, the Rich Froning video? And I'm like, no. And they're like, yeah, well, we did uh, we did the workout he did in the video. It was pretty hard. And I was like, okay. <laughs> like, But there are people that do that. They'll see the person that's successful, because that guy's on ESPN now, and that's... he's ESPN 3. <laughs> the Ocho. And uh, <laughs> he's, um, he's infinitely more popular than Dan Green, because... Millions of people know who he is, and and that's yeah. not the same for Dan Green. But people will look at the, you know, whether it's Rich Froning or or any of the the people that are the flavor of the month in CrossFit and emulate that training, and maybe <clears throat> perhaps even emulate their their volume of training. So those are the people that you get, Eva. And so when you when you get get someone that is just that comes to you and they're just broken, what's the first thing that you do with them? Well, let me clarify. I do get people that are that are that have overtrained CrossFit, but I also get those marathoners. Okay. Um, you know, I get the runner that's like, I've had a hamstring injury for two years. You're like, how the fuck do you have a hamstring injury for two years? Well, they keep running. <laughs> you know, that's this like, there's this addictive part of it, and it's almost like they need permission to slow down. Um, and I think that's huge. Yeah, I guess so, to be fair, it's not just CrossFitters that overtrain; it's everything. No, there's all <laughs> kinds. And then I have people who've just been through a hard emotional time. They've been through a divorce. You know, I have a couple people here in Santa Cruz that have come to me, and they work out, but they said I've been in a, in a divorce. I'm really stressed. I can tell I'm losing my fitness, and I'm trying to do more, and it's getting worse, and I'm getting more stressed, and it's kind of like this big ball of yuck that's happening. And so we want to unwind that. Uh, so the first thing I do is I do I, I do a free 10-minute consult with everyone. I am a really big believer in building rapport 
with everyone I work with, I want them to know who I am. Because sometimes if you just Google Eva T, you're going to, you know, I've had some clients, be, I was afraid, like you're this scary girl and I'm not, I'm just, I've got a, I'm, I'm really a pussycat <laughs> and I really love to help people and I'll do the best I can to help you and as I've aged I've gotten a lot more compassionate and so I, it breaks my heart to hear these stories and so um, we'll talk, we'll just BS for a while in that 10 minute I give a lot of free information away probably that I shouldn't, my, my business manager um, he's like you just give everyone all the free information I said well you know I just want to help them that's the yeah, story of my life that's, by the way Yeah. so Anyway, so I do a 10-minute consult with them. It usually runs long. And I talk to them about, let's hey, let's find out what your sympathetic stress overload is. And I do that by taking um, an adrenal test, which is a saliva test. Some people think they're bullshit, but from, from Rob Wolf has kind of got me in on that stuff. I know a lot of the military is using that for guys coming back from you know combat, and uh, they're messed up. You know, they're living through bombings now. And... Um, and they're they're stressed out. They're not sleeping, and they have similar, more, more severe symptoms as overtraining. But I think it's a continuum. And so I do the adrenal test, and sometimes I do an adrenal test with also added hormone testing, which would be testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, melatonin, and I think that's it. And it's going to give me a DHEA level, and we see where they are. And a lot of times if we catch this stuff early, um, the basis from what I learned from Dr. Kalish is that the adrenals are the first step in usually hormone dysregulation, which women get worse than men, but men can get it too. Their testosterone can get low. And I know we mentioned drugs, but hey man, if there's a guy with low T, he has the right to have normal T. You know, Um, he's not happy, he's suffering, just like a woman with low estrogen is suffering when they go through menopause. It's it's the same kind of thing. And so I want to make sure that I separate the two, that this isn't for performance, it's to get you to a normal balance. And I'm not saying I'm providing these things, I'm providing feedback on them. So it's not medicine, it's what I call health optimization. So we do an adrenal test, we get the results, we talk about the results. If the person is what I call adrenal burnout, then I give them a workout prescription, um, the limitations on their training. No, the 80% of this thing is lifestyle. Get your ass into bed early and start eating good quality food and deal with some of the stresses in your life. And then th- I teach them that you need to monitor your stress levels and match your exercise according to your stress levels. So we do the adrenal test. I get them on a few supplements, temporary supplementation, because I, I don't want to be that guy, and um, and I watch them, and we con- we communicate over email, and for most people, I try to get them on an HRV, especially if they have severe adrenal burnout. I um, I, I tell them I want you to be on an HRV monitor. And hold on, hold on. Fo- before we get on HRV, sorry to to cut in. That's I, okay. I want to kind of set, kind of paint a picture real quick for the listener. Um, the body is an organism that functions uh, by releasing hormones as a result of stress. So you, um, I'm not going to get into a comprehensive look at this, but basically there's some sort of stress or a lack thereof, and then there's a response from the body because the body wants to be in homeostasis. And so if someone is training too hard or just training in a way that is uh, going to be debilitating, 
then there's going to be some sort of hormonal reaction as a result of this if there's not enough recovery. And then on top of that, if someone has a lot of psychological or emotional type stressors going on, the body doesn't necessarily differentiate between those things because the hormonal response is similar or sometimes the same. And so it basically creates hormonal disruption is a better way to look at it. And so when someone has this uh, hormonal debilitating horm uh, disruption going on, that's the kind of stuff that um, snowballs together and creates an environment in the body that uh, doesn't perform well and then makes someone feel like shit. And so that's kind of like what we're talking about, the, the type of person that may have been doing too much and then might have other stuff going on in their life. Eva alluded to uh, whether it's depression or divorce or you know big life events that are stressful and then trying to use exercise or training as a way to make up for that and instead of it helping and being a release and you know providing endorphins and all that conventional fitness wisdom type stuff it's actually making things worse and and adding to the already disrupted environment and so she's kind of referring to people that are in that disruption and and like she said 80% of it is just life improvement just making someone healthier so getting better sleep will help uh someone get at it it's almost like being in a state of overtraining not not the same type of uh nomenclature but if someone is just doing so much shit that they're they're messed up <laughs> that's like well sympathetic overload is a good way to say it and i thank you for clarifying that um what happens when we overtrain and people are unaware of it is that our feedback loops get broken mm -hmm. they get dysregulated and that's really the core of it you know, when we we have a lot of stress, our cortisol levels go up. And the number one way this goes out of whack is really emotional stuff. A death, a divorce, even a new relationship can cause, um, you know, high cortisol levels. Yeah. And uh, when the brain, it really starts in the brain, when the brain stops, um, <clears throat> stops accepting the signal um, from the bloodstream about what the cortisol levels are, it shuts down. It's like, you've just been knocking on the door too long, Mr. Cortisol, and I'm going to ignore you. So the adrenal gland continues to secrete cortisol um, in an uncontrolled manner, and, um, and then that's when you see cortisol levels getting low, and that's when you see um, what we call the pregnenolone steal, where we see that now hormone dysregulation. And um, so... It all starts with just you know one little um, you know one little hair in the soup, I guess you'd call it, and it just starts this big cascade of dysregulation and basically a skip in the feedback loops. And all I'm doing is trying to reset the feedback loops so that you can get back to a natural state. Because if we continue with the broken feedback loops down the road, there's a higher potential for future disease. And by optimizing health early on then we um, we hopefully can reduce your risk of future disease. And of course, with all the things we've got going on in healthcare in this country, it's really not a good it's not a good deal to see the doctor. So I try to teach people to be a student of their own health and learn about their body and learn about cortisol and hormones and be able to read about it and comprehend it so that, I don't have to be by their side for the rest of their life. My idea is the same with training, to teach people the basics of training and overtraining and teach them my knowledge so that they can make um, decisions based on, on good information for themselves. Right, and, and then so that's, kind of the, the picture is, is that you've got training, but training is a part of the holistic approach. Yes. Uh, the, a holistic approach is gonna include uh, 
I kind of lump this stuff when I talk about it on, on 70s big I just kind of call it like aspects of recovery like sleep hydration food quality you know macronutrient intake uh, all those things are going to have an effect on how someone recovers and obviously there's like other non-training things that are going to be like maybe uh, relaxation type stuff uh, to try and combat against stresses so uh, to take all that and put it into more of a thing that can be implemented it's like what are the, the shit that someone can do to improve so so you started talking about hrv so what is that so we do the adrenal with? and we see where they are first of all like i have some people that they send me an adrenal test i'm like you're fine you know let's just tweak your sleep and your food and you're out of here some people are in big trouble they're really not feeling well and um so we we get them on the subs and then if they're training um I have them use the HRV. And let me let me back up. With some people I'm like, take two weeks off. And that's a real, like people freak out when you say that. But yeah. you ask them like, when's the last time you took a week or two off? And they can't remember. And I'm like, well, there's a big piece of this issue is that you don't know how to take a week off and you don't see that as being good for you. Um, so sometimes just them learning that is just, a, you've taken a huge chunk of the problem away. Right. Um, by just doing that. Hey, how about? That, I know I've had to do that with, probably even with Mike, but I've had to do it with Chris. I've had to do it with myself. Um, I've had to do it with myself. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, just as a side note, one thing that helps people, uh, if you're like, hey, you need to just take like a, t a week or two off, and they're like, oh fuck, and they start freaking out. I'll just tell them to do like mobility stuff, and then that makes them think that they're getting something done because <laughs> they'll right. they'll like, all right, here's your actual program the next two weeks, and I won't have any training whatsoever. We'll just have a bunch of mobility work. That seems to yeah. preoccupy people's mind. Yeah, and then they come back and they feel feel better. But but long term, they can get back into that grind. So you're trying to teach them, teach them how they got into the trouble that they're in. Trying to teach them how to fish instead of just exactly. And them so, the so we were talking about the HRV. I don't know if you want to get into that, yeah, but uh, so, um, I uh, I met a guy um, in Texas last year named Joel Jameson. And I had been using this app on my iPhone called an HRV. And what the HRV does is it's basically measuring your stress levels. We've got two type of nervous system in our body. We've got our parasympathetic nervous system and our sympathetic nervous system. And we know that sympathetic is fight or flight and parasympathetic is rest and relax. Uh, we usually in our environment today with all the information, iPhones, traffic, and all those things, we are reacting to being stuck in traffic the same way that we react to um, being chased by a lion. But you're trapped in your car. So you've got this pent up fear, stress, you know, you're late, you're getting texts. It's incoming. And in our environment, I think now it's it's a very tough time for our physical body. Yeah, and the HR this is me, me too. And so the HRV is a great thing because it's it's not only for athletes. It can tell you what your stress level is. Stress is stress is stress. Whether it's emotional stress, food stress, pain stress, or exercise stress. And the great thing about the HRV is it's giving you a value for your parasympathetic and sympathetic stress levels. And it gives you, you put uh, pull our strap on your chest and you and it, and it takes your heart rate for hey, two and a half wait, minutes. Wait, you pull it up, you put a strap on on? 
<laughs> not that kind. Mike's um, usually doing that, but I was surprised okay. I didn't get anything, and I, I, I'm surprised no one said, "Oh, you said strap on." Um, no, it's a chest strap. Okay. That you put on. For heart rate. For heart rate, but it's not measuring your heart rate; it's measuring the heart rate variability. Uh, so it's measuring the time between, I think it's the RR interval, I may be wrong, I might get slapped by Joel for this, but uh, you don't want a metronomic heartbeat. You don't want it even. The, that's a sign of stress. You want a variable heart rate. When you were a baby, your heart was healthy and it, be, it could beat fast, it could beat slow, it could be beat fast for two beats and it could beat slow for two beats. And that's variability and that's a healthy, plastic, uh, mobile, I guess you could say, heart. Uh, as we age and if we uh, do too much um, uh, intense exercise or marathoning or just have a lot of stress, our hearts tend to get a little bit stiffer, and that's when you see less variability. So everyone, everyone's variability is going to have a different value. Just because your variability was 70 and mine was 70 doesn't mean that you won't throw a red and I won't throw a green. So then the, the monitor gives you a red light, a green light, or a yellow light. And those are very simple. If you've got a green light, you can train and you're you're looking pretty good. Your variability is 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 good. If you get a yellow light with training, I have people cut their volume by fifty percent. And if you get a red light, you go for a walk, or you don't do anything. Maybe you meditate or do mobilities, you know, something like that. And I always say, and I I know, and the HRV has been used by the Russians, so. People always said, oh, the Russians were great in sports because they were the first ones to use anabolic steroids. And it's like, well, that may be true, but I tell you what, they also had technologies like HRV back in the 60s, and it might not have been the only technology, they were just smart. They had the funds to do intelligent things, and they were doing them along. Yeah, they, they, tested, they tested everything and then tried to... It's Mike. It's almost like Mike T. Like he just takes data with everything, and then it may be meaningful, it may not be. But he, you can try and make a, an answer. You try and make an assumption based on the data. I know Mike has a few questions about the about this HRV, but uh, basically, it it gets to your heart rate variability, and then it kind of gives you a guide for what you're going to suggest to someone. So my first question is: Is this? Do you see this? Uh, the 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 red yellow green do you see that uh, vacillating in a short amount of time or is it kind of like a continuum over like the course of a week or two or to a month or is it like something that has a variability day to day? Well, you look the the potential you have with the application is to look at the week, the month, and all of your your patterns, um, and that's what's so cool because you can see you can periodize with it. Um, the, the manual that Joel wrote that comes with it is one of the best training manuals for periodization and um, training that I've ever read. And it's not that long. Uh, it was one of the best parts about having an HRV monitor. But you can look at your trends. You can look at trends, but you can also look. Sometimes you get a, I've had, I've woken up and I've, and I've taken my HRV and I've thrown a green. Then I checked my email and I got a shitty email from someone that matters to me. And I took, and one day I'm like, I'm just going to take my HRV again. And I threw a red. 
So I went from not being stressed to this state where this email, you know, got under my skin and I threw a red. So things changed in a very short time. Um, now, could I have gone and, and, and meditated or figured things out and taken my HRV again and maybe moved up to a yellow or a green? Yes, but you do get that red flag, like maybe like trying to max back squat today isn't the best idea because I don't have my head in the game. Right. Or, you know, I'm a little bit more stressed. Like there's something going on that it might just not be worth it to take that risk today. Uh, then there's also we have parasympathetic spikes where all of a sudden you'll see a really high number because you're very parasympathetic and we've learned that that can be an indication of being exposed to a sickness and it's your body's reaction to a stress. It's trying to slow you down because it's had some exposure to something. It's compensating. So it's, it's a mini uh, school in learning about your body, this HRV, uh, that I think is such a good tool. And um, Dutch Lowy uses it, but he got to the point where he could, he was correlating and he, he claims he can, he can tell without tell, taking his HRV what his training load should be. I like something objective. I'm one of those people that needs someone to say, Eva, cut the shit, don't go training today. Or, you know, you right, can train yeah. today. You know, it's, it's, I, I need it's, that. You have a hard-charging personality as far as training goes, so you, you need something to objectively say, hey, throttle back, pump the brakes. Yep. Um, on the HRV website, it's got Jim Laird, powerlifting. There's some, there's some fighters on there. There's mm -hmm. uh, baseball players. You got James Fitzgerald. Molly's on there, and she's. I, I love the video. If you go on the HRV website, her video for the you gals out there, it's just she has the same, the similar story to mine. Um, she was a figure com competitor, and she was getting feeling worse and getting sick. And it, she tells her story how the HRV, especially women, are pleasers, and they're they'll put themselves and their health and their wellness in front of. Um, taking care of everybody or they won't put it in front of taking care of everyone else in their life they tend to do that so I think that the HRV um, is a good thing for even if you're not an exerciser just to know like hey I'm, I'm, I'm driving a little hard I need to start taking care of myself right. instead of one so else. So I, I have a question and it's going to be a similar question to you and Mike because we're talking about um, using HRV to kind of throttle people back that have done too much but now let's look at it and just uh, using it for the sake of performance. So let's say that uh, Mike is your client. Mike uh, is competing in strongman. He's tra he trains pretty hard for that. Uh, he, so he's done a lot of powerlifting and so he's getting more into strongman. And so, you know, you know what strongman's about. You've done most of the movements and stuff. I've seen videos of you yoke walking and stuff. So you know what that entails and the kind of stressors it puts on the body. Um, let's say that Mike has a, a repeating schedule every week and it, he's got a heavy day coming up, but he, he shows up red or even yellow, what are you going to say to him that day? I'm, I'm going to say to him to, to, to follow the HRV. We're, we'll do, it's going to be better to do that heavy day on a green day. And if, you know, moving training back one day isn't going to make or break you. You know, and I think that's what athletes need to learn is that, you know, let's see what, how you look tomorrow. Let's take a break today. And if you think about it, 
really, if you're going to do a heavy day, you want to be prepared. You want to do your heavy day with some thunder, not right. with, you know, with weenie legs. You, you know, <laughs> oh, my HRVs are red. and ugh. I'm, imagining, um, I'm imagining actual, like, wieners for legs. <laughs> okay, well. So, but then I would also look at his whole week. And what you'll learn in Joel's manual is that you want people to throw some yellows and reds because guess what? They're getting stress, which is adaptation. So we want, you know, okay. for some of my higher level athletes, I want to see them throw a couple yellows and a red every week because that means my training is causing stress and there's we've enough given... Dis- there's enough disruption of an adaptive right. stress. Absolutely. Now, all right, so Mike, let's say that uh, you're consulting with Eva you throw a red on a day that you're supposed to front squat 465 like you want to this coming weekend or that you're gonna lift heavy stones or something like what's your reaction gonna be and let's say you get off the phone with Eva let's kind of ignore the the fact that you might be paying her money let's just say that you're kind of helping as a friend are you gonna train that same way are you gonna pay attention to this Man, uh, you know, I, I I would definitely it would definitely take me a minute to figure it out because like the way that I am, uh, I mean, I, I I think about things like uh, if you ever seen you ever seen Kurt Kowalski talk about when he when he doubled a thousand? Have you ever seen that, Justin? Yeah. When he when he talks about it, he talks about it and he says, uh, like leading up to that, he just sat on his couch and he was just getting amped just thinking about it. Right. So it's tough it would be tough because you know like if I know that I need to do something in order to set myself up for a competition or I feel like I need to do something uh then like I think about it all the time I think about it when I'm driving to work I think about it when I get up I think about it you know when I'm taking a shower I think about something all the time uh and you know even thinking about it I can get emotional you know what I mean uh maybe and, not you know, maybe with, not AC emotional but I I know what you mean you know the the visualization and the uh, just the idea of completing something. So uh, because like Saturday is generally when I have the most time uh, to train heavy. So that's normally when I do my you know my deadlifts and my you know my front squats and my some of my event training. But uh, yeah, I, I guess you know if I was if I if I really uh, if I, you know, if I was doing the HRV for a long period of time, then yeah, I guess I would have to listen to it. You know, it would. Oh, I, I, I guarantee you, if I was red, I would go super red because you know I'd be pissed that I couldn't train. Oh, yeah, but, uh, right. Mike, uh, Chris has this joke about Mike that he's diabetic because he gets angry like when he doesn't eat and stuff, and so <laughs> Mike would be really. He gets pissed. hangry. Yeah, hangry. Um, yeah. And then <laughs> a thing about Mike too is that he. Uh, when he says he thinks about his training, Mike is actually really good at, at programming, and so he sets himself up for success. So it might be, you know, if we did have, if we did have him on the HRV and we were to look at it, it I would think that Mike is typically, with the exception of maybe emotional stress, I don't, I'm just deleting that out of the equation right now. But I would think that Mike, you're usually set up to have a green day on your on your heavy days because that's kind of how you and I program. We kind of like set up for the heavy day. So that things don't interfere with it, and I so I would kind of assume that you're typically on the better end of that anyway. But I just thought it'd be interesting from from your perspective because I know that you're you don't have a lot of leeway in your week sometimes given your schedule. But um, well, another thing that just really quickly yeah. that I'd like to mention is that uh, you know a lot of people. I mean, I got out of the military uh, two weeks ago, and one of the biggest reasons that I did that was because. Uh, of the PT test and the fact that I would have to drop 20 or 30 pounds every six months 
uh, and I would have really, really bad anxiety about that. And it wasn't just it was it wasn't just doing the test because I knew I would pass. You know, if I set myself up to do it, it was the anxiety of not of uh, of the unknown. Like, what would happen if I failed? And that got so bad uh, that I knew that I would not be able to continue doing strongman like at the level that I want to perform at. Well, let me point uh, out. Let me point out that the biggest thing on on Mike's PT test that he had to overcome was the waist circumference because he's got this short torso and he's a big guy. So I've always had a thirty-nine inch waist. So the the fail if you were over a thirty-nine, uh, and that's subjective, you know, uh, <laughs> then you fail automatically. You can run all day. You can do push-ups. It doesn't matter. And you know there are people that say that that's that's a great way to do it. I don't really give a shit what they think. Uh, <laughs> I never, I never failed any other component. I never failed a single PT test. Uh, I definitely came close, but you know, just the anxiety. So, uh, I would definitely have had a hell of a lot of red days leading up to a PT test because I, mm -hmm. there were some days I couldn't sleep. You know that I was so anxious about it. Now, uh, but let me say this, you guys. So talking to Joel, I said, hey, you know, I got competitors. You know, do you, do you, you have to remember. And I said, do you keep taking their HRV when you get like one week out? Yeah. Uh -huh. and, he, and, and he said, you can, and you can like not show them their results. But I was about to say that, yeah, don't tell them. <laughs> don't tell them, but th remember this, that sympathetic um, activity is also a preparation for performance. You know, getting nervous is part of performing. Mm -hmm. Having anxiety is, is your, you know, when you have that sympathetic activity, that's your body kind of oiling itself to get ready to do something amazing. So getting a red before competition is, is, is okay. Yeah, I got your you. body's getting ready. So you have to learn to read these things. Now let me just talk about another scenario. I, I like what you said about, well, we plan for the heavy day. Well, that's great. And you probably will throw a green if you plan for a heavy day. But no, most people don't plan for their heavy days, yeah. right? They're just <laughs> they're just haphazard. <laughs> There's good. I'm gonna go in and do what I can do. But here's the other scenario for someone that's experienced like you guys, and especially for someone like me. How many times has it happened to you? And probably not many. But how many times have you seen the scenario where someone comes in, their head's not in the game, something emotional happened, and they decide they're gonna go heavy anyway, and they do one set and they do their second set, and in the middle of their second set you see this look on their face like uh oh something gave yeah. and they've hurt and they've hurt themselves and yeah. then they're they're out of the commission for 6 weeks and they've got anxiety about an injury and to me that's what i see happening a lot and that's what an hrv can be that thing that says not today and if there's even a 50% chance a 30% chance even if your chances go from 1% to 2% they double it may be better to just lay out that day and wait for a green. Now, I'm not saying that you're not going to hurt yourself on a green, but let's stack our cards in our favor. And like you said, let's create training for success. Yeah. Um, that's, that's an interesting look at it because, uh, well, first, that we would expect to have some some weird days leading into a competition or even leading into a, a, a heavy workout like Mike because he's talking about like I, I bet when he's gonna when he wakes up for the 465 front squat that he wants to do this Saturday is that what you're gonna try and do Mike? I'll do 450 and then whatever I can do after that yeah so he's gonna be all excited about it so there's that and then yeah the, the problem is is that most everybody's not like Mike or me or or 
Eva, I don't know how much you kind of throttle yourself back, but I throttle myself back a lot when I don't want to. And it's usually because I'm not around other people. If I was training with like Mike and Chris, I might be more prone to, to kind of go crazy, but I've definitely hurt myself training before. And that's like the worst feeling when you knew you could have done something differently to prevent it. So obviously someone's going to be better whether it's for a competition or longevity wise for competition, if they're not putting themselves in a position where they can get hurt. And so that's a good point about, about however someone wants to do it, but the HRV seems to provide more of an objective thing. And I've never used it to clarify, but it seems to be a way where you can be like, Hey, you know, like you're yellow today. Maybe you shouldn't be kicking it up to like above 85%. Maybe stick around 80% of your training of your training load today. So, that's it, Mike. Do you have any questions on on the HRV? No, I went on the website and it looks like uh, it looks like you can do a risk free trial for three months. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm all about trying stuff, so I'll probably yeah. try it. It's good shit. And then there's a, there's an online thing you can see. It, you can go online and look at it. But to me, it's like it's just one more duck. Getting one more duck in a row. Yeah. You've got your. For me, it's I've got the adrenal test. So I see their overall stress level. And I can see if they've got some hormone dysregulation. A lot of times for people, and especially women, they do, you know, HRT is really big, hormone, uh, uh, bioidentical hormone therapy is really big, and I'm an advocate of that for women who are suffering. Um, but you can't really do that until you have that basis of getting the adrenals. It's kind of like you're patchworking. If you're just taking estrogen and progesterone from your doctor, especially the stuff they're prescribing, which um, if it's synthetic can be dangerous, um, but if you get with a really good um, doctor, they're going to know, they're going to use bioidentical hormones, and they're also going to know that until you get your stress levels and your lifestyle and your adrenals kind of in line, you're just kind of shooting at moving targets to get the hormones back into sync. So um, that's, the, that's kind of the, the, the foundation that I use, and then um, have them meet people using HRV for stress feedback. And then if people don't feel better six months to a year, then my final thing is I'll do a GI test. A lot of people are walking around with um, parasites. And so that's another thing that can cause stress is low-grade infection. So um, I take a very sensitive test for GI stuff, and um, we deal. I either refer them to a parasite specialist or a. I can – I sound like a total hippie when I say this. I can't even – don't even – can't believe it's me talking, but I can I can get rid of most of the parasites herbally. So, oh, <laughs> with gonna, patchouli is that oil. Gonna no. someone to, is that going to require someone to to poop and then like paint their poop on a thing for someone to analyze it? Yeah, all my tests are at home tests. So you you know I do the ten minute consultation. You sign your life away. I send the test to your house. You do the test at your house. You put it in a FedEx pack and you send it away to the lab. I get the lab results and we discuss them. So with the GI test. You have to do four poop samples, maybe five. Oh, I was actually yeah. kidding when I asked. It's like when you go to the doctor for like a comprehensive checkup and they make you paint your poop. It's like that's one of the most weird moments of my life. Yeah, is and that's one smear. Yeah. This the test I do. You have to put. Yeah, you have to. It's really not a pleasant thing, but you <laughs> have. And the, the but the fun part about it is hearing everyone's techniques of how they do their collection. Um, like I've had one guy like shut the water off, empty the water in the toilet, 
just go in the toilet. Then you take the little shovel and you take the stu- take the poop out of the different parts of your poop. You put it in the vial and you close it and you're done. Like that was the most elaborate way I've ever heard of it done. Because <laughs> he didn't want to have know, his, he didn't want any floaters it, to have to mess with. He didn't want to have the poop in a receptacle. And then, you know, so there's just some funny ways. But, you know, at, I get 80% of them come back with something. That, that, I'm, I'm all about this kind of like, uh, sometimes people call it the N equals one thing, like as far yeah. as making generalizations about this. But I'm all about trying to find out information about myself to try and contr- to improve either my health or my diet. And I've, I've never had... Um, any of these hormonal tests done. I haven't really even had like uh, blood lipid profiles taken before. And I know there's been periods uh, where I've been overtrained or something where I need to do that stuff. What would you say to someone that is skeptical as shit about this? Like there's someone listening right now that's like, well, that's just fucking stupid. That's bullshit. Like what, what, what do you say to someone that takes that stance? And then that's, that's okay. I, I, if, if you think it's bullshit, then you know, you don't have to take part. It's only if you're. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't have to do I don't that. want. I don't want to deal with you if you think this is bullshit. I, I want to deal with the person that's that's searching, that's seeking, and that wants to be a student of their own health. Let me let me and, rephrase my question. Someone who's skeptical about this, as far as like the validity of it, mm-hmm. like, I guess you could just say, well, uh, look at the results because I've done this with X amount of people, but. Um, it seems like you could just kind of say, you know, there. If you have the way I kind of talk about uh, stress on people's bodies when I'm when I'm talking to them individually or at seminars is that uh, I say like, you know, if you're eating in a way that is creating digestive inflammation, and then you're creating some sort of that that's now uh, systemic inflammation, and then you're doing all this training on top of that, and let's say you have 100 recovery credits for the week, we could say or. And then uh, your training's taking up uh, 75 of those, and then your digestive tract is taking up 40 of those. That's clearly more than 100 credits. And so now you're in this recovery deficit for the week, and week after week, you're going to keep getting a little bit in farther in debt of paying off your recovery cost. And so that's kind of how I explain it to people. But you're, you're able to actually point to something and say, like, look, you've got, you've got a inflammation in your digestive tract like look your hormones are not in these optimal zones and also this heart rate variability thing is showing that you're you've got something going on that's making it so that you these three or four days in a row you're not in a state that's optimal for training so it's like you, you basically you're saying that all this stuff pr- provides little data points for you to make to get a big picture of a person right Absolutely. And so if, if you're calling bullshit on it, I say, you know what, start doing some studying on, on systemic inflammation and inflammation. And um, I, I work in dentistry. I'm a dental hygienist. Um, I also am writing paper and studying and seeing how, you know, what's permeability in your gum tissue. It's letting in bacteria and things that cause systemic inflammation through your blood. It's the same with your GI tract. If your GI tract's inflamed, you're not absorbing uh, nutrients, and they say the GI tract is the second brain. You can get some emotional issues from that. So I just I want people to be a student of their own health. And if you're calling bullshit on this stuff, you know at least I've opened a door for you. You know, get online and start start a. Um, doing some research on inflammation and GI tract and and see what you find and like I said I want you to be a student of your own health I want you to be an N equals one study on yourself I do it I do it 
in harm's way so that I can learn about it for my clients. And um, I, I, that's my passion. And so there are naysayers, but I, I have to tell you what I say to those people is, have you been to the airport lately? And how do you think our general population's looking? Right. And it's, to me, it's a pretty sad picture. And I say, don't you want to be better than that? Don't you want to, you know, that's, if you want to go the full, you know, Western medicine, and I don't see anything wrong with it, but I just see doctors. I do. <laughs> so, so deep in their practice that they don't even do research anymore. I sat next to a doctor on an airplane the other day, and I started talking to him about the GI tests, and he knew all of the organisms I was talking about, you know. He knew about cryptosporidium parvum, and I was like, what do you do? And he goes, oh, I'm a, I'm a doctor. And he was open to it. He goes, you know, I don't have time to study this. Can I set up a consultation with you to talk about diet and systemic inflammation? And I, I don't claim to be a doctor. I'm just a geek. And uh, I'm a dental hygienist, and I'm a, um, a practitioner in strength and conditioning and functional medicine. I, I, I shouldn't even call it functional, functional wellness. So what I'm doing is simply optimizing health so that you don't end up at the doctor's office paying a bunch of money and getting scripts written for one medication or another. Right. I'm, I'm a wholeheartedly with I, I approach my life with the mentality that I don't ever want to take a, uh, some sort of drug until I've addressed all of the all of the factors on my own that I could address. You know, if you're not mm -hmm. in an optimal state and there's things that you can address, then that's that's right. my mentality, and that's also my mentality for people that train because I want I want them to do everything they can to recover better. And uh, at that point, if they want to use extraordinary means to try and recover and stuff, that's on them. But I, I think that to to plan your training appropriately and to do everything to make yourself as healthy as possible, that's going to be what sets someone up for longevity. But that's also going to be what sets someone up for performance if you're looking at it from that perspective. Um, yeah. Okay, so Eva, you do consultations, so you can talk to people one-on-one -on -one about this. Um, mm -hmm. Your website, again, is evatstrengthandconditioning.com. Um, mm -hmm. What do you teach in your seminars? Uh, I, teach, uh, I teach how to be a student of your own health. I teach people a little bit about inflammation. Uh, I talk about diet. I talk about, actually, you gave me an idea. I think in my next seminar, I'm going to give everyone a paper clip when we were talking about volume. And I'm going to say, okay, this is what too much volume does. And I'm going to have them all bend the paper clip as many times as it takes to break. Because I think that's the best analogy with, you know, why you don't do 100 snatches or why you don't do 300 air squats. Um, because it's inevitable that things are going to break if you don't let them recover. Right. So that's, that's one. So, um, and then I tell, I teach them about what the biomarkers for health are. And um, Tufts University has uh, uh, has written that the number one biomarker for health, above cholesterol and above triglycerides and above all of those blood markers, is muscle mass. The number two biomarker is strength. So you guys are on the right path. And I want to tell people, you know, it's not about looking good. It's about have, packing on a little muscle. What have I seen on the, on the social media now? Women are saying, get rid of the gap. Have you seen that? Oh, for the, the gap is... The leg gap? Yeah. Did you see the guy in Lululemon or whatever the... Lululemon, whatever the fuck that is. I can't, I, <laughs> Lululemon, you're right. 
he uh, yeah. he was like, well, it's uh, women aren't fitting in the pants because their thighs are too fat. <laughs> yeah, no, right. So, so you know, letting women know that it's 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 okay to, you know, to have a little, you know, you don't want to look like um, gnarled jerky, you know, be so vascular and your face just gets old looking. You want to a, a weirdly descriptive term from. <laughs> Gnarled jerky. Jerky. That's yeah. like a math addict. It does, but you know, I feel like I might have been headed in that direction. Times where my body fat was really low. I mean, when your body fat's low, what's the first thing on the steroidal pathway? It's cholesterol. You need fat to make hormones and to have clear skin and to look like a beautiful woman. And you can look like a beautiful muscular woman. I mean, look at Molly. She's gorgeous. <laughs> um, bless you. Thank you. And, <laughs> I sneeze loud. Uh, Sorry. So. I teach people about those things. And then I say, so here, is, here are the juggernauts of health. So I teach them to back squat and I teach them to deadlift. And I'm a big rip fan, so I teach them rips techniques because I, I teach them why I use the movements I do. And I use the movements I do because they're safe, efficient, and effective. And then, once, then I've got this guy in the audience like, yeah, but he's never brought anyone to a world championship or national blah, blah, blah. I'm like, no, maybe not. But Mark Ripito's starting strength has gotten more people strong than anyone in history and in a safe, effective, and efficient way. And that to me means a lot. And safety means a lot to me. Getting hurt's not fitness. So I teach him how to squat, I teach him how to deadlift, and then I do a little um, basic O lifting uh, movement session. If I have time at the end, I'll give them an example of what kind of like workout of the day, if they want a metabolic conditioning workout, what kind of little thing I'd put together. And I tell them what movements I leave out now in training. Like I don't do wall balls anymore. It's like, why do wall balls if you can do a power clean and a front squat, you know? And you know, why do sumo deadlift high pulls? You're trying to teach yourself pull with your arms. Like that just blows me. Up. Sumo yeah. deadlift high pulls kill me. I have I I what do you think, Justin? I'm sorry to. I'm like, let's just, just do the sumo there. deadlift. No, I've always, I, I don't. I've I don't always, get it. I've always hated sumo deadlift high pulls. I'm just gonna leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Kind of so, like the upright row off the ground. So there's just some things you can leave out, and it's and it's not gonna kill you. You know, be smart about it. Be calculated about the movements you choose, and choose the ones that are the most safe, efficient, and effective. Why? Why do the junk? Why why get the side dish that could screw you up? Right, you know? especially when uh, there's not some sort of high-level performance that needs to be attained. Some people go, they might go into training, these training environments with the want of having high performance, but sometimes a lot of movements are thrown into people that really shouldn't be doing them and, and that can, uh, you know, result in injury, which then gets in the way of having fun in life. Because... I, I, Eva, I think you're a good example of someone that, uh, at, you know, especially at this point, you train and you and you're you're strong and you're conditioned and stuff. But then you also take time to to have fun. Like you go surfing for a, a week or two at a time, and you get to ski in the winter. And so, I think that you're a good. Uh, you set a good example for this whole uh, holistic health approach because it looks like that you you live that way. So is it a is it difficult for you to kind of implement this stuff or is it getting easier as you learn it and are using all these metrics? Well, you guys, I have to say this. I don't have a choice. <clears throat> my health condition, according to my labs, was not good. 
and I have to do this. I have to heal. Right. If I want to be healthy in the future. Are you still I, Are you still in a state where you're trying to improve those measures, or are you better? Are, are they better now? Uh, my My blood tests are coming back better. Um, I dysregulated my thyroid, and that's the one bummer. I have to take thyroid. I don't take synthroid. I take a thing called Westhroid. It's a natural um, uh, thyroid medication, and um, and um, that's the one thing that bums me out is that I do I did dysregulate myself potentially permanently from okay. not eating well and over exercising. The other labs are really good. Everything else is looking really good, and I've I've recovered. But it's a lifelong journey and um, being healthy is not just okay my labs came back good so now I'm going to start beating the shit out of myself again sure. it's like this is the lifestyle that's going to keep me healthy and slow down which a great friend of mine said um, the reverse progression of aging so we have that positive progression where we get better we're squatting more we're benching more but there comes a time in your life where you're like I might not ever PR again Right. <laughs> you know, that's a tough thing to face. I mean, for me, I know I will never be as good of a skier as I was in 1995. It's just not happening. Right. Um, and I face that, and it's okay. And so, but what do you do so that that curve on the back side going towards your later years is, is gentle? That you, you basically stab off the aging process is what you're saying. Stab off the aging process and still be able to be functional and perform and have a decent back squat, still be able to back squat, <laughs> still be able to train. Have fun with training, in other words. Instead. And have fun with training and be productive, but don't make – my message is don't make training your life. Your life is your life and training is a part of your life. But yeah, you said that when we were on the phone the other day. I like that a lot. And I, I want to go back to talking about um, – your your thyroid stuff because that's that's kind of a more real look like if you if you train in this intense way like a, a person not you if a person trains too hard then they can cause you could say irreparable damage or something that is going to be complicate their their body for the rest of their life because in the same way that someone can become so severely diabetic that they have metabolic disease that causes damage that can't be undone the same way can be said with training and so I guess that's another point to kind of pump the brakes throttle back especially when someone's not a, a high level professional athlete you know they need to take their health into consideration instead of just going balls deep into a training program and not really paying attention to the repercussions of it you have to look at the long term cost benefit simple as that. Yeah. My friend Gant, uh, he lives in Texas. He always says, I've never rested too much. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I've always used that um, in my seminars, but he, it's a, it's a good point because he's, he's had a varied athletic career. And so he, he's in his, uh, he might be 40 now. I don't know. But he, he was in his late 30s when, when I was uh, hanging out with him a lot. And he was just like, I can't recover like I could 10 years ago. And it just was so blatant to him and it bothered him and stuff. But it, it's, it's a good point because the most terrifying thing would be that your training, the thing that you love the most, is the thing that's going to be your ultimate destruction. <laughs> right. And that's where I'm saying to people, that's where people get scared and they start doing silly things. And that's where I'm saying it's okay to feel that way. And we'll get the work done, but let's just do it intelligently. You can still train the rest of your life. 
I'm not taking anything away from you. Right. But it, it's, it's okay to have those feelings. It's a normal process of aging. But let's just deal with it in a constructive way to where you can feel productive and you can feel like you are creating a environment of success for yourself. Um, and and let's let's make it work for you and not be like, oh my God, I'm never going to back squat the same again or I don't feel like going into the gym so I'm a loser and I'm getting fatter <laughs> and blah, blah, blah. It's like, whoa, let's turn this bus around and let's start chipping away at it and, and getting realistic about what our goals are and um, and uh, and making it something positive and and don't you know don't put your life on this um, you know I see a lot of moms out there who's like who you know maybe not spending as much time with their children because they're going in because they have to you know they have to do Fran and and it's like whoa what's going on there I've known uh, I've known someone who almost had birth complications because of their um, commitment to their training their competitive CrossFit training and that's when it's really weird <laughs> when it's not weird that's just dysfunction that's metal yeah. dis that's that's addiction and I always say you got to be careful because if you're addicted coming to the gym is like coming to AA and everyone's holding the beer yeah hey Mike yeah he's quiet well I had my microphone I think he's in I think he's in Mike I think he's just... in the bathroom taking a stool sample <laughs> I'm here <laughs> I sent I sent you a picture in our little chat thing on here. Yeah. So click that and tell me what you think. Eva, you can probably see it too. I, you know, it didn't come up on my computer, but I got my phone here. Is that, a, is that a prowler with wheels? Well, it's a prowler with wheels, but it's a picture of Eva pushing this prowler. And her That's hamstring. A... <laughs> Go ahead. She looks, real, she looks real jocked. Her hamstrings, her hamstrings, if this company is not using this picture to sell their product, <laughs> then they are fools because Eva's pushing this f fucking weird sled with wheels on it. I looked at it on your website last week. It's like this, uh, you'll explain it's it here. the expo. You'll the explain expo it in a expo. second. But she's pushing this thing and she's wearing these, uh, I'd call them booty shorts and uh, her hamstrings are, are, are all over my face right now. <laughs> uh, what is this thing? This, it's, like a, it's like a wheeled sled that has a motor that decelerates the movement, Eva? Yes, it's called the Expo Sled, and as far as pushing sleds, this thing kicks ass. You don't have to put weights on it. The harder you push it, the harder it pushes back. It doesn't make that scrapey noise, and <laughs> it is my favorite piece of equipment. And um, yeah, it's called the Expo, Expo Sled. They're from Texas, and um, it's a little bit more expensive than your typical um, slide on the slide on the pavement sled, but. Like I said, you don't have to, and you can pull it too. You don't have to put weight on it. Um, it's got a reverse um, resistance engine on it, That's and awesome. it is freaking. When if you if you if you're a pusher and you like pushing prowlers and you push this, you you will you will not go back. You'll just be so dissatisfied when you go back to pushing it on the on the. And then you can use this inside too, which is nice. Justin, Justin, would you like to give it a good push? <laughs> No, one, of the first, one of the first times. Uh, <laughs> there's the a first, there's a huge backstory to that. It's very long though. It would take another two hours. One of the first times Mike uh, pushed the prowler at in Wichita Falls, he yeah. uh, he pushed it around the block. I think it was half a mile. Yeah, I pushed he it pushed, half a mile. But it wasn't that much weight. But he came back in the gym, and we had just like started being friends. And he came in, and I 
if, if I knew what I knew now, I probably would have called EMS or something. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't move for. I sat there for forty five minutes because it was not safe for me to drive home. Yeah, he was like, I can't drive home right now, and he just <laughs> he just he hung out and he just ate like a, a banana and some peanut butter, and he was just like. He just sat there with a look like he just witnessed a horrible crime, a horrible violent crime or something. He just sat there on the table and I was just like, man, you all right? And he's like, no. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah. all right. So Eva, um, people can look for you at the next seminar. That's in, that's at Lalane Fitness in San Francisco on December 8th, right? Yeah. And I think this one, I'm not sure. We're just putting it together. It might be women's only, um, but I, my seminars are open to men and women. Um, and then I have, I'll be at um, Train Like a Girl in um, Lexington, Kentucky with Molly and Jim Laird on the weekend of February 1st. And then that following weekend, I'll be at CrossFit Huma, in, um, which is outside of New Orleans. And I'll be doing my second uh, seminar there. And then we have it penciled in that I'll be um, back east in New Jersey um, for a seminar in that area. We haven't scheduled it yet, but it's in, in, the, in the works. Okay. And then uh, you do you regularly post stuff on your Facebook and Twitter? I post on Facebook and Twitter. I usually put a blog post or an interview up on Tuesdays. Um, my website's evatstrengthconditioning.com and um, yeah, just uh, trying to keep it rolling. Uh, you can contact me through my website, and uh, you know I talk to everyone. Whether you follow through or not, I just like to get that first ten minutes to talk to you. I'll answer your questions, and if it's totally up to you where you want to go, and um, there's there's no, it's not a high pressure gig. I'm yeah. not gonna like and start sending you. Sorry, if you're out in California too, Eva does coach people as well. It's not that she only does the seminar and consulting things. She does uh, she coaches people, so you can get in touch with her on the website evatstrengthandconditioning.com um, seminar December 8th some more next year and you'll have that up on your social yep. media and the website and everything yep Mike you got anything else I do not thank you uh, thank you very much for talking I've, I learned a lot and I have a lot more to research okay well you're you're welcome to contact me for all that stuff and um, and and if you get a chance, um, I have to say this because everyone does, uh, put a like on Eva T. Strength and Conditioning on Facebook, and I'm Eva T. Strength and Conditioning on Twitter as well. I'd love you to follow me. Awesome. Eva, thank you very much for coming on, and right. you guys know how to get a hold of Eva. It was lovely talking to you once again. I'm All right. I think AC is going to be really butthurt that he didn't get to say hi to you, uh, so I'll, I'll tell him to call you, though. Yeah, just have them call me. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, it was All right. awesome talking to you. Learned a lot. We'll get stuff to research, and maybe we'll have you on again in the future after we get some research in and Mike experiments with this shit. Right on. I'll look forward to it. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Well, take care. Thank right. you. See ya, Mike. See ya. Bye. -bye.